Uh, what a joy to be here this morning. So if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Hebrews chapter 5, chapter 5, verse 11, all the way to chapter 6, verse 3. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 11 to chapter 6, verse 3. Let me read God's word to you and then we'll pray for and ask for his assistance in understanding his word. Concerning him... We have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is an infant. But solid food is for the mature, who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. Therefore, leaving the elementary teachings about the Christ, let us press on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of instruction about washings and laying on of hands and the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. Amen. Let's uh, pray together. Our Father in heaven, as your Holy Spirit inspired the word of God, so by that same spirit, we ask that he would breathe life into our souls. We pray that your spirit would open our eyes, the eyes of our hearts to be receptive to your word so that we would be eager to apply it and eager to live it out. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, occasionally the biblical writer will dip his pen into acid and use mockery sarcasm or put down to drive home his point the device may not be obvious but it occurs more often than the casual reader thinks one thinks for example of the prophet elijah's taunting of the prophets of baal on mount carmel in first kings eighteen twenty-seven. in this competition of whose god is the real god elijah sarcastically mocks baal that he may be preoccupied with a plethora of divine activities such as traveling or maybe he's napping Or using the bathroom. One finds sarcasm in other places as well. Perhaps the biblical writer is at his best when describing the divine trauma of Dagon, the god of the Philistines, before the ark of Yahweh in 1 Samuel chapter 5. It says in 1 Samuel 5 verse 3 that when the Ashtadites arose early the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen on his face to the ground before the ark of the Lord. And I believe with a chuckle on his face, The writer must have written his next words. So they took Dagon and set him into his place again. And we as readers would ask how ridiculous that the Philistines had to put together the broken pieces of their god, Dagon. What kind of glue did they use, right? Maybe Elmer's glue wasn't strong enough, so maybe they used the Philistines' version of Gorilla Super Glue. Well, Jesus too was known for sarcasm And perhaps most effectively when it was in rebuking the Pharisees. Several times in the gospel accounts, our Savior would ask these experts in the scriptures, have you not read? Have you not read the scriptures, your own Bible? Now you need to feel the weight of Jesus's insult against the Sadducees. What Jesus said against the Sadducees would be like claiming that Wall Street knows nothing about finance. Jesus was making a point that what the Sadducees and the Pharisees claimed to know best, they in fact know least. 
And because they misunderstand the Bible, they also misunderstand God. Now, as you know, sarcasm is a form of humor. And I have observed that whenever scripture is surprisingly humorous, it is also deadly serious. There is always a serious point being made when the biblical writer uses sarcasm and humor. And in our text in Hebrews, the writer uses sarcasm and portrays his congregation as toothless infants who have to be nurtured with milk. It is with some biting irony that the author of Hebrews calls them babies who need to go back to the bottle instead of chewing on solid food. It is all calculated, you see, to shame them with the hopes of awaking them to press on to maturity. Now, I, as a dad, use this kind of sarcasm at times with my sons, while my youngest, D'Angelo, his three-year-old son, he still requires me to hold on to him and sing him songs before going to bed. My oldest son, Dominic, is at an age and weight, I might add, where it is not appropriate anymore. But out of jest, I'll hold my uh, 85-pound son and I'll hold him struggling and I'll sing him songs. And as I'm doing so, my seven-year-old is quick to respond, hey, I'm not a baby. But more seriously, as parents, there are times when you and a sharp tongue will remind your child that they are behaving in a way that is appropriate for a little baby. We use this kind of irony and sharp rebuke as an effective tool to help them to grow up. It's much like the experienced teacher who senses when their students are no longer absorbing the lesson material. He knows that the students do not always advance in their learning skills and that sometimes a word of rebuke or correction is very much in place. And so the teacher will be sharp in their words. Did you not learn anything this year? Right? Must we go back to the ABCs? Didn't you learn this back in kindergarten? And so the words of the author of Hebrews, who is a preacher and teacher himself, to his congregation is using pointed and scolding words. Something has gone drastically wrong in the learning process. By every measure, the readers should have graduated. They should have progressed to the next level. But they have failed in their examinations because of a lack of interest, a lack of diligence and adequate preparation. The author had planned to continue on teaching on the rich teaching of the high priesthood of Jesus according to the order of Melchizedek. However, the material is too advanced for his readers. The theology is too deep to grasp, not because of the writer's lack of skill, but more so because of their inability to understand. And so the author here needs to pause and make sure that they go back to the basics and with a mixture of rebuke and encouragement to prepare them to give their full attention to the teaching of Christ as the high priest. He wants to say more about Jesus Christ, but he has to prepare them for what he has to say. And so for the goal for our text this morning is to have something to the effect so that we would stop sucking on our thumbs and say, hey, I'm not a baby and press on to grow. Now, if you know anything about the book of Hebrews, the dominant theme of Hebrews is the surpassing glory and the supremacy of our Lord Jesus Christ in the whole universe as the great anchor of our lives for his people. And from chapter three, he's been stressing the greatness 
of our perfect high priest as the author of eternal salvation. And Jesus, the author teaches, was categorically different than all of the priests of the Levitical order. For in verse 10, he was being designated or called by God as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. The author wishes to elaborate further on Christ as priest according to the order of Melchizedek. There is much to explain to these Hebrew Christians regarding the advantages of having Christ as our high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. But since their knowledge of the priesthood was restricted to the Levitical order, and the author pauses here, and he says that this is too difficult to explain to them, not because the subject matter of Christ's high priesthood is itself above one's head, but the real difficulty lay in the hearer's heart. Look at our text. Since you have become dull of hearing. Now, dull of hearing is filled with colorful language. It can be used of the, the numb limbs of an animal which is ill. It can be used of a person who has the imperceptive nature of a stone. Yet the author is not using it to refer to any kind of physical hearing, but to that condition that the prophet Ezekiel diagnosed amongst God's people who have eyes to see but do not see, but who have ears to hear but do not hear, for they are a rebellious house. Dull of hearing is that condition of laziness or sluggishness in understanding. One commentator puts it, stupidly forgetful. It's not simply mental laziness, but spiritual resistance. There is this apathetic attitude to the gospel and an unwillingness to work out the deeper implications of the gospel in their lives. Being dull of hearing is a serious problem and it is caused by a lack of nourishment. You'll see this in verse 12. Look at verse 12. For by this time, you ought to be teachers. You have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. What he is saying is that there is both physically and spiritually the possibility of the tragedy of an arrested development and growth. As the late Scottish preacher Eric Alexander has said, the arrested growth is due to a lack of diet. And that lack of diet is due to a lack of appetite. And that lack of appetite is due to a sluggishness in the area which we are fed spiritually. And the means by which we are fed spiritually is through the hearing of the word of God. And you see, it goes back to this rebuke when the writer says, you have become dull of hearing. Now, throughout the book of Hebrews, hearing the word of God is of vital importance. The letter begins this way. God after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days, he has spoken to us in his son. And then in chapter two, verse one, he says, for this reason, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away from it. Three times in chapter three, quoting Psalm 95, the author warns today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. And this hearing of the word of God is 
punctuated with divine judgment when it says in this well-known verse, for the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and the spirit of joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts of intentions of the heart. But now in chapter five, the author speaks personally and directly at them. And he says, you have become dull of hearing. And see, we, we may be hearing all of these sermons. And perhaps like Ezekiel's hears, we may even be pleased with the sound of the gospel as we would be with some delightful music. But are we careful to apply it to ourselves and what we hear? Do you examine yourselves by it? Do you labor to treasure it in your hearts? Do you pray over the word? Do you make it the subject of your conversation with your families, with your friends? Is it, is it, is it the subject of your meditation all the day? And if not... This is the reason you are sluggish and have become dull of hearing. And I'll tell you the significance of all of this. When under the same ministry of the word, there are some almost in this church before your eyes who are growing in the knowledge of Jesus Christ and growing into maturity and character of like Christ. And they go on from sapling to a full grown oak stable man and woman of God who can stand tall against the hurricanes and the storms of temptation and the flesh and afflictions who have put their childish ways behind them and grow up into adulthood while, the, while at the same time some are growing under the same ministry of the word there are others who have begun to eat solid food early on but they are now back at the bottle their early converted years of their eagerness to listen and to respond to the word of God has now cooled. No, now they are no longer ready listeners. Other things and interests and vices have captured their attention. Now we know too that this condition is a developing one. They have become dull of hearing. For by this time it says you ought to be teachers. You have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God what a rebuke. What a scolding that is. Sufficient time has passed since their conversion for them to have become well-grounded in the faith. They should have become spiritually mature to be able to teach others. Now, this doesn't mean, of course, that they're expected to be, uh, to, to be in, the pre in the office of a preacher or an elder. Not at all. But this is more of the person who doesn't teach or disciple anyone. Because of the worn out excuse, I don't feel adequate enough. Why? Because their ability to understand spiritual truth remains at the ABC level. That's what the author is talking about here. It's a very serious issue when someone is sluggish and reluctant to hear the word of God. The issue is not remaining as babies. Oh no, the issue is going back to being a baby again. This is the very definition of what backsliding is, you see. The truth is, there is no such thing as a static Christian. We are all, every one of us, heading in one of two directions. We are either progressing or we are regressing. We are either moving forward or falling back. We are either climbing or falling. Listen, this whole idea of a status quo of Christianity is a great delusion. It doesn't exist. And the author is alarming them. 
that going back to babyhood might soon characterize their very lives. Now it is true, friends, that Jesus said that the greatest thing in the world is the childlike spirit. But there is a world of difference between being childlike and be and the childish spirit. You see, Peter Pan may make for an entertaining play on the stage, but the per- person who refuses to grow up makes a tragedy in real life. This is the spiritual tragedy that the author longs for us to move on from. We will all do well to ask ourselves some very simple yet profound questions. Are we growing? Are we advancing in our faith? Can we say that we have grown more in the knowledge of Christ and in holiness now more than a year ago? Five years ago? 30 years ago? Are we more mature than when we are at any given point in the past? The great danger, according to the author of Hebrews, is backsliding into spiritual infancy. And it is this, isn't this an urgent matter and of great concern to all of us? And the author gives more reasons for this. Firstly, implied in the text is the fact that the Christian life, by definition, is a developing and growing life. Now, this seems very obvious, and yet we are very prone in forgetting it. You see, this puts Christianity in an entirely different category from all different philosophies and ideas and teachings of the world. There is doctrine and teaching, to be sure, in the Bible, but it is much more than that. It is life. The New Testament constantly emphasizes this vital principle. You must be born again, says our Lord to Nicodemus. This is what we're reminded of everywhere in the Bible, that one, when once becomes a Christian, he or she is born again. They receive new life. Peter deals with the same truth when he writes, like newborn babies long for the pure milk of the word so that by it you may, what? Grow in respect to salvation This teaches us that the whole principle of growth and development and to be mature, that we start as infants. And from that beginning, we are to grow and we are to develop and to mature. Yet in spite of this foundational truth, there is a tendency on our parts to forget it. And I might add a fatal tendency to assume that once we have become Christians, that we have arrived. Conversion is not the end but a beginning and we must rid the idea that becoming a christian is the end of our story and that we are now complete that is why there is this constant push from the apostles to grow in the grace and knowledge of our lord jesus christ we are told in the scriptures in the bible that the gospel is referred to as a seed it has life inside it and when this word is implanted in us james 121 it is able to save your souls Because there is life and in it has power and this new life is given in order to mature and grow. But the second reason the author gives for why this state of spiritual immaturity and backsliding is so urgent is because if they remain babies, they will be unskilled in the word of righteousness. Look in your text in verse 13. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is an infant. And by this, we have an example of the author's knowledge of what is today described as child psychology. 
There is nothing more char- characteristic of a child than being unskilled in life. They are unaccustomed to the realities of, li- of life because for one, they lack the knowledge in how to understand situations. They lack the experience from having to go through the rigors of life. And God's word teaches that the way of righteousness, it teaches us about who God is. It teaches us about the world that he has created. It teaches us that the only way that sinners can make sense of their life or find purpose in life is by trusting in Jesus Christ who died for them and raised for them and restored them to righteousness. And having told the way of salvation, it then teaches us how to live as Christians. That's why the word of God is called here the word of righteousness. And as you study the word of God, what happens in your life? You become skilled in the way of living the Christian life. You become more and more accustomed to the word of God. It's not just that truths get filled up in your mind with Bible knowledge and facts, though it is good to have your head stored full of Bible facts. But it is that those Bible facts make you wise unto salvation when applied by the Holy Spirit to your heart and you begin to see your life as God sees it. And everything starts to make sense. When you start looking at the world through the lens of the Bible and you're able to make sense of your own life and what is pleasing to God because of what the word of God teaches. But since the author says you've been dull of hearing and apathetic to the word of God, you are unskilled in the word of righteousness just as a child is. Now I want you to think for, with me for a second Some of the characteristics of a child, I know there's some parents here with young children as a result of not being skilled in the word of righteousness. A characteristic of childhood is that the child likes entertainment, excitement, distractions. Now, this is true of all of us in childhood. The child cannot stay still and focus for more than five minutes without a desire to be entertained. The child tends to build a secret antagonism, even to its own parents, if they are good parents, because they are enforcing discipline. Good parents are always enforcing measures of restraint. You can't do that. You can't do this. You can only watch one episode of Paw Patrol, only one snack. How much nicer is a favorite auntie or uncle who comes occasionally in a week and gives them everything they want and refuses nothing? The nice auntie or uncle comforts them when they are scolded and plays and entertains them. Those uncles and aunties seem so much better and kinder than mom or dad. Unfortunately, this all tends to be true of us as Christians. How much more enjoyable it is to be entertained than to go through the hard and painful work of a lesson. This is the reason why so many churches have the element of entertainment and excitement in their services. They seek to pamper their church attenders with what is popular and easy and to to give them bite-sized little snacks to munch on. What about this child mentality of entertainment in us? I heard from one research that the iPhone users unlock their phones on average 80 times per day. In addition, it was shown that the average iPhone user checks their phone between six and seven times per hour or about once Every 10 minutes, do we once in a day open our Bibles and read it and meditate 
and study. Our days are constantly interrupted by texts and tweets and notifications and ads and Instagram posts, emails and on and on. Our brains are being trained to crave entertainment and distraction. Well, what else is characteristic of a child? Well, children are very fearful. They're very fearful because of their ignorance. They are unskilled in seeing reality from fantasy. They have wild imaginations. Now, it's not unusual for children to have night terrors. They're usually afraid of the dark and imagine monsters crawling out of from under their bed. But Christians who are ignorant of the word of God are full of fears and anxieties and worries. They imagine things that terrifying things are going to happen. They cannot step out into the world and do great things for God because of fear of what may happen to them. But remember the words from the Apostle Paul to the Romans, for you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship by which we cry, Abba, Father. Paul says to Timothy, for God did not, has not given us a spe- of spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of sound mind. And so Christians, we must get rid of the childish fear by becoming skilled in the word of righteousness, but there's more. Childhood is characterized by their liability to be misled and deceived. Look at verse 14. It says, but solid food is for the mature. And remember, he said to some of the people, you're not mature, you need milk and not solid food. But he's saying regarding to the mature who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. Now, this characteristic emphasized here is the ability to discern. And this ability belongs to adulthood as they gain experiential knowledge to discriminate between good and evil. And so, therefore, they're able to make sound decisions in life. But a child tends to believe everything it is told. They are at the mercy of an imposter that comes along. Paul wrote about this very thing to the Ephesians. Would you turn to Ephesians chapter 4? Our, our, our brother read this passage for us before we started our service. And to start our service, excuse me, Ephesians 4 verse 13. And it says, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature what belongs to the fullness of Christ. This is the goal, to be a mature man to be a mature woman. Then he says in verse 14, as a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness in deceitful scheming. You see, children are those who are tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men. They do not understand and they do not have the ability to discern. Now, how true this is of those who remain children, spiritually speaking. We are living in an age that is characterized by confusion and uncertainty. Now, while man has never had so much knowledge about the world that he possesses today, perhaps he has had never so little knowledge of God's word as ever. That's why our times are marked by confusion, a lack of discernment, and its inevitable result is immaturity 
and superficiality. The Apostle John wrote, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Now in our day, how many teachings and messages appear plausible on the surface, but are truly insidious and soul-destroying? How many teachings, teachings come packaged as the Christian message? How many teachings come with a smile on their face and use all the Christian vocabulary, but it is full of heresy and error? And how many are duped and carried about by every wind of doctrine? Why is this happening in our world? It is because, as the great Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones insightfully comments, because they don't have a standard. They don't know how to test doctrine. They don't have knowledge. You can't test anything without knowledge. Now you see the child's liability to be misled arises because it doesn't have a standard yet. It lacks standard because it lacks knowledge. Now there's some people in this world who earn a living by testing. They test wine, they test coffee, taste food, even video games. They must possess a certain knowledge to do that. And that knowledge comes from having a standard. It is exactly the same with regards to the truth of discerning good and evil. Without a standard, one cannot test or evaluate anything. And the failure to test means that you are lacking in judgment and you will be an easy prey for all kinds of false teaching. Now, this is not a new complaint against God's people. The prophet Hosea was given a message by God to deliver to the children of Israel in chapter 4, 6. My people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. The prophet Isaiah shared the same sentiment as Hosea when he said in Isaiah 1, 3, an ox knows its owner and a donkey its master's manger. But Israel does not know. My people do not understand. The root cause of their spiritual decline is their lack of understanding. And that was true then. And it is true now. If you do not have a knowledge of God's word, you don't have a standard. And without a standard, you cannot discern anything. You see, the author of Hebrews is concerned to impress the characteristics of a child on their minds because if they do not realize this and are aware of their backsliding back to babyhood, they would never grow out of it. What then does he go on to say in chapter 6? He says, therefore, therefore, let us press on to maturity. Therefore, leaving the elementary teachings about the Christ, let us press on to maturity. He's trying to encourage them. That's the whole aim, the goal. He wants these Hebrew Christians to grow up. He does not pander to them. He says it's time to leave behind the Similac, the infant formula. It's time to stop sucking on our thumbs, but it's time to grow up. Now, the reason for his sarcastic, sharp words and calling them babies was to rouse his audience to stop acting like babies and start growing into maturity. Now, I know that some of you may be thinking, what does he mean by leaving the elementary teachings about the Christ? Does he mean we don't need the basics of the gospel anymore and move on to greater theological truths? No, not at all. 
you never forget Jesus and the gospel. To leave the elementary teachings about the Christ does not mean to abandon them any more than a student who has learned the ABCs can dispense with the alphabet. The letters of the alphabet are indispensable in any form of communication or writing of the most advanced learning. So also the author is saying that the elementary teachings of Christ is the basic ABCs of the Christian faith. They are the foundation. The point is that the foundation is not the stopping place. It is the place to build upon it in order to progress to greater maturity in Christ. And the author tells you what he means by the elementary teaching about the Christ. It's listed right here in verses 2 and 3. According to the author of Hebrews, here are the ABCs of the Christian faith. Note that these come in pairs. First, there is the repentance from dead works and a faith toward God. This, this refers to the believer's conversion. Repentance and faith describe the believer's response to the gospel. In the gospel, the, the sinners learn that in all of our efforts to please God, however good they are, are merely dead works. And his only hope for salvation is a complete change of attitude. And he must cease trusting in his own righteousness and cast himself utterly upon the mercy of God and by faith turning to Christ for salvation. And so if you're not a Christian here this morning, the first thing that you must do is to repent from dead works and place your faith in Jesus who has died and rose again on behalf of sinners. Now the second pair involves ordinances or ceremonies. It says of instruction about washings and laying on of hands. Now this washings may be a reference to John's teaching in 1 John 5, 7 to 8, used of water baptism as the first public ordinance of the Christian life. Then the laying on of hands is closely tied to water baptism amongst the early Christians and, in, and symbolized the imparting of the Holy Spirit. Now taken together, they have to do with the empowerment of living the Christian life. The first pair off this list of this Christian, the last final pair, I'm sorry, of the Christian basics is the resurrection of the dead and the eternal judgment. It deals with the destiny of believers after death. Essential to Christian faith is the resurrection that awaits us after the grave, the hope of glory because of the one who holds the keys to death, that is Jesus Christ, who lives forevermore. Indeed, all the dead will be raised in the great day of judgment. Those who are in Christ receive everlasting joy. And those who have rejected Christ in this life in horrific, horrific condemnation forever. This is the summary of the basics of the Christian faith. The first pair deals with conversion. How by grace sinners come to salvation. The second deals with sanctification. The process by which believers grow in Christ likeness. And the third with glorification. The blessed hope of glory. Where all believers will be transformed with glorified bodies. And living in a new heavens and a new earth. Now this is all basic. This is all foundational. This is what the author is saying. Must I come and tell you this again? Must I tell you that all of your works are like filthy rags to God? Must I tell you to stop trying to do things in order to make yourself acceptable to God? Must I tell you that it's only by the blood of Christ that you are saved? Must I tell you that since our future is secure in the resurrection of the dead, you do not need to fear in this life? But you see these Hebrew Christians, 
they were stuck on elementary things. And since they were stuck on the ABCs, they were not ready to appreciate what it means that Jesus is the high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. That tells us that there was no evidence of growth from some of these Hebrew Christians. There was no evidence of development. There were no signs of greater Christ-likeness, no increase in understanding. They were at the same place. They were at 10, 20, or 40 years ago. They have stopped at the elementary teaching. Now, sure, they understand the basics of the gospel. They have, as the church father Augustine said, dipped their feet in the shallows, but they have not plumbed deeper. They have not advanced beyond the basics. But what about you, my Christian friend? Does this exhortation speak to you at this moment? You must ask yourselves, am I growing? Are you maturing? Is your knowledge of God and His Word more than it was a year ago? Am I at the same place as when I first became a Christian? There can be no standing still in the Christian life. You know, it is told that on his pocket Bible, the Lord Protector of England, Oliver Cromwell, had a model written in Latin that said that he who ceases to be better ceases to be good. That's what the author is impressing upon us, that we need to strive toward greater maturity. We need to leave behind the elementary principles and press on forward to greater maturity. He's making the same point that Paul makes in Ephesians chapter 3. Would you turn there with me? Ephesians chapter 3. There is this great prayer from the Apostle Paul to the Ephesians as he prays in verse 16 that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man. What for? To what purpose is he praying this for? So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith and that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. And what does that knowledge lead to? Look at verse 19. It fills you up to all the fullness of God. What does that mean? At the very least, it means it matures you. It grows you. God's fullness is the perfection as he himself is the standard. And so when Paul is making this prayer that we will come to know the vast dimensions of the love of Christ, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God, he is praying that they may be all that God had wanted them to be. Spiritual maturity is Paul's goal. This is the goal for our Christian lives. It does not stop at being converted and knowing that your sins are forgiven and then, and then remaining content for the rest of your life. No, it means entering into and developing unto the measure of the state of the fullness of Christ himself. You see what Paul is shooting for in the Ephesian believers is the same thing that the author of Hebrews is aiming for. Knowledge of the love of God in Christ that produces maturity. But you ask, how can we obtain this advanced knowledge of the Son of God? How can we grow and mature? The author of Hebrews gives the answer. Solid food. Strong meat. Solid food is sound doctrine. 
They are the deep truths of the faith. Look at verse 14 again of chapter 5. But solid food is for the mature who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. It says through practice, that is through training like an athlete so that he is at the peak condition. The believer must have their senses trained. It takes diligence, effort, self-discipline. Discipline yourself, said the scriptures, for the purpose of godliness. How may our senses be exercised? Well, by the use of frequent study of the Holy Scriptures. Just as a psalmist says that the man who meditates on the law day and night will be blessed. And growing to maturity, you see, there is no substitute for the disciplines of Bible study and reading and meditation. We cannot bypass the handbook that God has given us and expect to grow in our own way. We must be like the prophet Jeremiah, who from the solid food of God's word said, your words were found and I ate them. And your words became for me a joy and a delight of my heart. Now, Francis Bacon, one of the leading figures of the English Renaissance, he observed that some books are to be tasted, some are to be chewed, and some are to be thoroughly digested. Jeremiah understood that the Bible is a book to be devoured. Now, I am certain when Pastor Sam and the elders designed this worship service, not merely the sermon, but the whole service, they are seeking to have this juicy steak hanging off the side of the platter for you. The only question is, are you coming here to eat? Or to change the metaphor, are you still like a baby who eats meat for the first time and then spits it out because it's too hard to chew? God's word, the strong, solid food of his word is meant to be devoured, to be enjoyed, to be daily accustomed by feeding upon it. And lest you think that growing is all dependent on me and my own effort, in my own discipline, the author is quick to point out that the true key to growth is the hidden energy of the Holy Spirit. When the author says in verse 1 of chapter 6, let us go on to perfection, there is a passive voice here that draws the attention to the need for the personal surrender of the active influence of the Holy Spirit rather than one's personal effort. Let us go on means literally... Let us be carried forward. And interestingly, that same verb is used by Peter who spoke of the prophets of old who were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The primary thought of the author of Hebrews is then to be carried together towards greater maturity to God, that God must be involved if we are to grow. It's clearly stated in verse three, and this we will do if God permits True knowledge of God, brothers and sisters, and maturity in our growth then is not learned from books, although they do help us. They are not learned in theological seminaries and education classes, though that should be encouraged. It is not merely increased facts about God. No, the knowledge of God is a personal knowledge because it is a knowledge of a personal God. You and I then are to grow in maturity and knowledge when we seek to know Christ. 
in a spirit of dependence upon Him. And we ask for His Spirit then to lead us into the truth. Therefore, beloved, let us stop dallying with everything that hinders our growth. Let us leave behind childish toys and behavior. Let us shake off the sluggish dole of hearing. Let us press on to maturity. Let us grow in the grace of the knowledge of our Lord. Let us exercise and train our senses by God's true and living word in order to attain for maturity. And as we do so, let us pray, Lord, do this. Lord, do this for me. You must do it. Enable me to grow. Amen. Let's, let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. Your word is like a mirror to our souls and exposes all the warts and imperfections of our lives. We especially see the way that your word reveals to us the dullness of our hearing of it, our apathy, our spiritual resistance to the word of God. We confess, O Lord, we have allowed the foolishness of a child to play a role in our lives. But we pray that as we have heard this word, that we will resolve to press on to maturity. Oh, Lord, we pray that you would do a mighty work in our lives, that we would be able to attain the measure of the fullness of Christ by being rooted and grounded in love and knowing the depths of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, our Lord. Help us to grow in this knowledge of God and in his word. We pray all this in your son's name. Amen.